Well, Father, what great confidence we find in the promises of your word and that you are a loving Heavenly Father and you watch over your children. You love your church. You've given your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, to die for this church. And we thank you that we can be part of your family. And we thank you for the instruction from your word. Uh, We need it. And we ask now, Lord, that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to truth. Thank you for the innate power and authority that's in your word. And Father, in these days of darkness, we need discernment and we need strength. And we will count on you to refresh your people with your word and to strengthen us in our walk with you, even to challenge the hearts of those today who might not know you as Lord and Savior, uh, that today would be their day of salvation. We give ourselves now to the hearing of the word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you back to Matthew chapter 12. And as we turn to Matthew chapter 12, uh, we are, if you're new to us, uh, working our way slowly through Matthew's great gospel, the gospel and the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me remind you of the testimony of a man who, by his own words, claimed to be uh, a sinner uh, that was as bad as they get. Many of you know the testimony of John Newton. He's the man who came to Christ and wrote perhaps the most well-known hymn ever written, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. You might not know that 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 hymn is getting pretty old. John Newton was born in 1725 in London. He has a really interesting story. Um, He had a godly mother who taught him about the Lord and taught him to pray. He had a pagan rough father who was the captain of a sailing vessel. Um, Interestingly enough, Uh, John Newton's godly mother passed away when he was only seven years old. He had only two years of school, and at the age of 11, his father, who was a sea captain, as I said, took him to sea for the first time. His seafaring life is quite well known in his testimony. Some of it is apocryphal. I think there's a story going around about one time when he fell overboard and one of his buddies harpooning him in the leg and reeling him back in. And I think that's probably not really true. If it is, he's really, really a tough guy. Um, But uh, his life was wrecked by sin. Um, he He just lived a base life of debauchery, and um, some of the things that are included in his testimony were, were shipwrecks and being lost at sea. He became, when he was older, as a young adult, the captain of a slave trading ship and was a participant in that heinous activity. And in the middle of all that, ironically, he himself was captured at one time and served as a slave along the Guinea coast. It was during that time that he was rescued by the friend of, a fa- of his father, who was also the captain of another sailing ship. Newton was there along the shore, they said, and he lit a fire of driftwood to attract the attention of any passing ships. It was in the providence of God that this friend of his father, who was actually searching for him, sailing up and down the coast there, sent a longboat into shore to investigate the fire, and he found John there. 
He rescued him, and it was on that ship at that time that they were returning across the Atlantic from the coast of Guinea that they encountered a tremendous storm that threatened to ruin them. Um, Newton writes, this took place on the 10th of March, 1748. He said, that 10th of March is a day much to be remembered by me, and I have never allowed it to pass unnoticed since the year 1748. For on that day, the Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. Do you remember when the Lord delivered you out of deep waters? And it's possible that someone here this morning remains in deep waters. They said the storm was terrific. When the ship was plunging down into the trough of the sea, there were few on board that expected her to come up again. The hold was rapidly filling with water, and as Newton hurried to his place at the pumps, he said to the captain, quote, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. His own words startled him. Mercy, he said to himself in astonishment. Mercy, mercy, what mercy can there be for me? This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years, he wrote. About six in the evening, the hold was free from water, and then came a gleam of hope. Newton wrote, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor, and I began to pray. And I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call him Father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. He wrote, in the gospel, I saw at least a, a peradventure of hope, but on every other side I was surrounded with black, unfathomable despair. He cried out to God he was saved, and that's when he wrote the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me who's talking about himself. Later, Newton became a pastor and a minister of the gospel. He wrote, this is my testimony. This is my confession of faith. This is my hope. By the grace of God, I am what I am it is certain that I am not what I ought to be, but blessed be God, I am not what I once was. God has mercifully brought me up out of the deep, miry clay and set my feet upon the rock, Jesus Christ. He has saved my soul, and now it is my heart's desire, he went on, to extol and honor his matchless, free, sovereign, and distinguishing grace, because by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen? Amen? When John Newton was 82 years old, he wrote this. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. On John Newton's tombstone, it reads, John Newton, clerk. Once an, in, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. What a great testimony. What a dirty, rotten sinner John Newton was. I know that there's some phenomenal stories of dirty, rotten sinners in our room today. 
And I trust that it brought delight to your heart and clarity to your mind to sing Amazing Grace this morning. My chains are gone. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter 12, we have some very interesting teaching that will ultimately raise the question, it is not without its controversy, it raises the question, is there anyone who is such a horrible sinner that God could not forgive them or would not forgive them? Or is there a sin or is there sin that we could commit that God would say, I will not forget that sin? We call it the unpardonable sin. It it springs out of the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ as he interacts with the Pharisees. We're in Matthew 12, and let me remind you that at chapter 11 and 12, you have the beginning of a change of tone in the Gospel of Matthew. We've had his life and his birth, his life. We've had his Sermon on the Mount. We've had the balance of specific teaching, although there are significant sections of teaching coming up in Matthew. Um, We have had significant exposure to his miracles, his signs, his wonders. Who needs a sign? Remember, the Jews need a sign, don't they? And there he is performing these miracles, indicating for all the world to see that he is the Christ. And yet, in this time... The Pharisees refuse to believe, don't they? They refuse to acknowledge, even as he causes the blind to see, the lame to walk, even raising the dead, the mute to speak. What phenomenal miracles, what indicators. And they had a determined disbelief. You ever met someone with a determined disbelief? Can I tell you that that is a scary position in which to live? This is a transitional point or a pivotal point in Matthew as well. And we referenced this last week. The tone changes as our Lord deals with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are ratcheting up their their, uh, hatred and their attacks on our Lord Jesus. And the Lord is becoming even more overt as he recognizes them to be who they are. Uh, sons of their father, the devil. They are against, they are antichrist. They, they refuse to yield to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that's what brings on this teaching that, that is sometimes very scary to us as we wonder, I wonder, because I've committed some really bad sins, Pastor Van. I wonder if I've committed an unpardonable sin. People live in fear. It's possible that you also think that you're just such a bad sinner that you could never be saved. I want to encourage you today with the Scripture. It is a challenging Scripture as well. I want to unfold it as uh, we first read the text, and then let's just kind of unfold it. Let's let it click off part by part. And it's at the end of the teaching this morning that is our Lord's teaching that we encounter this unpardonable sin. It's quite interesting Um, Let's back up just a little bit. We remember that in chapter 12, as we began, is when the Pharisees came swooping in to criticize the disciples for for reaping on the Sabbath. They took grains of wheat and so forth and ate, and, and they had this big confrontation. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. And that's where Jesus says, let's just let our eyes go to 12, 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? I mean, the the Pharisees are so 
steeped in their religiosity and in their, in their set of rules that they miss the whole point of the law. They no longer show mercy to people. And they, they cause grief for the people and they actually care more about their sheep and their wallets than they do pitiful, broken people. And the Lord is pointing this out to them and He points to them and He says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then He said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and he was restored, healthy like the others. Verse 14 then kind of begins our text for today. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Here he's done this beautiful deed, but because it violated their Sabbath rules that they had made up, they hated him for it. Jesus was aware of this, and he withdrew from there, verse 15. I'm reading reading from the ESV. And many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. That's an interesting phrase. This was to fulfill, verse 17, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew quotes now Isaiah, mostly 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisee heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now watch the language closely. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. For whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, let's just back up with our text and let's just kind of roll up our sleeves and let's just go through it and let's um, kind of see if we can get an understanding of what our Lord is talking about here. The first thing we see, number one, in our passage as we unfold it is our Lord's unlimited capacity. Number one, his unlimited capacity for good works. And notice that it says in verse 15 that Jesus 
Because he was aware. Now, this idea of him withdrawing is related, and I'll explain that in just a minute, of him in verse 16, ordering them not to make him known. So he backs away from the Pharisees. They've been major confrontation. They are conspiring to kill him. He backs out of that scene. He moves. The crowd moves with him. And many followed him, it says, and he healed them all. Listen, this is no charlatan faith healer who for a few bucks will smack you in the forehead and get you to say, baby, this is a guy who will heal you instantaneously. And as long as they stand in line, he healed them. He had compassion, unlimited capacity. Nothing could stump him. It's nothing more than less than a picture of his marvelous deity. And it begs your mind to, to think how in the world could they miss that this was the Lord, this was Messiah, this was God in the flesh. And He healed them all. It's a great testimony of our Lord's earthly ministry and His compassion for broken people. You see it over and over and over. He cares for weak, broken people. So must His church. The second thing we see is that He regulated the publicity. He regulated the publicity. It's kind of curious, isn't it, that when you read in verse 16 then, He healed them all, and I take it that there must have been a ruckus. There must have been some noise that came out of this. I would think that if my shriveled hand were made well, I would think that if my lame legs regained their strength, I would think that if my blind eyes would see, I would be dancing a jig, I would be yelling and carrying on, I would be happy, I would want everybody to know, and He's just got this great healing ministry going and yet he says to them don't make this known it's a little bit of a puzzle it is a repeated phrase that comes up this idea or this concept that he limits his publicity and i take it that it is largely number one to restrain the crowds it's why he'll move out of an area because it's just, and, and basically the way it helps me to think about this, I think that what he's aware of is that he's going to have Palm Sunday too soon if he doesn't watch it. God is on a sovereign timetable with his son, the Lord Jesus, going to Jerusalem to Calvary. It's a three-year journey to get there. And he's on a perfect timetable. You're going to see in Isaiah's prophetic words that he has a ministry even to the Gentiles that needs to go on. There are things that are happening, and it's just not time yet. And so by calming the crowds, it's, it's holding back his earthly side exaltation where the crowds want to crown him king and make him king prematurely in the wrong way. You'll recall even in John 6, for example, they followed him around because he was giving away free food. And then finally they get a little tired of it, and then they all leave. But it was just part of God's timetable. I think the other thing that he tells them to go and don't talk about this, and he removes himself from that setting, is that it, it limits the response of the Pharisees. He knows that they are very upset with him, particularly from this time on in the book, as we've already referenced, the Pharisees are only, um, it's, they're only going to be more inflamed. It's only going to accelerate this idea of the Pharisees scheming to destroy him, his ministry, and murder him. And it's not time yet. He's only halfway there. So calm down. I'm not going to ride in on a donkey yet. It's not time for that yet. We're not going to Jerusalem to sit on a throne yet. And furthermore, I don't want the Pharisees to get their murderous schemes too far along yet. It's just not quite time yet. So that's kind of my take on that. And so he regulated publicity. 
And notice then that Matthew in writing quotes Isaiah, and he, number three, confirms our Lord's identity. It's a confirmed identity here. He uses, once again, as Matthew does so often, quotes from the Old Testament. Remember now that their audience, Matthew's audience, and our Lord's audience for that matter, would have known the book of Isaiah very well. They knew what Isaiah had quoted. They were longing for Messiah. And so when when Matthew, to his audience, writing to the Jews in the first century, quotes Isaiah, this was real and relevant to them in a way that Isaiah tends to be a little foggy to us. It's like, well, it's good stuff, and we do like Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, and that's certainly a a messianic, prophetic prophecy of Isaiah's. But when you read stuff like this, it doesn't really, you know, nobody's life verse is taken from this section. But what it is, it is Matthew's affirmation to his Jewish audience that, look, I want you to see that this is the one that Isaiah prophesied precisely about. Now, let's look at it really quick. Behold, my servant is a great statement of the servant's heart of our Lord Jesus. He's been chosen by his father. We know that, right? And then God in his perfect timing, Galatians 4, 4, at just the right time, God sent his son to carry out this plan. And it was The servant that God had chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, reminds us of the words of our Lord at his baptism, right? When the dove descended, the skies opened, and God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I will put my spirit upon him. And that was affirmed at his baptism as well. The other thing you need to remember that's helpful, even as we get to the end of this passage, is that remember that our Lord in his deity yet humanity, this This 100% man, 100% God in the flesh, theologians call that the hypostatic union. This idea that he was all God and all man, it's a mystery. But in that role, in his earthly ministry, remember that he, he allowed himself to limit the use of his God power. And he, he was not omnipresent. He was one place at one time. He exercised his Omniscience, when he would say he knew what they were thinking, but he set aside and held off the usage. And I think that Isaiah is pointing out where God says here in verse 18, I will put my spirit upon him. The idea is to understand, and this is part of what makes it so serious when the Pharisees look at Jesus and tell him he's Beelzebub of his father, the devil, because really he is he is being he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he has a powerful Holy Spirit driven ministry in his earthly work. Understand that the Lord Jesus was empowered by the third member of the Trinity throughout his earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit. They work together, but the power of our Lord Jesus to do much of this in this role of, and he could do it as second member of the Godhead, how it all fits together is a mystery, isn't it? But this was a working of the Holy Spirit in him as well. That's why they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit when they call Jesus Beelzebul, the devil. And he will reclaim justice, the end of verse 18, to the Gentiles. It's not just for the Jews. Notice 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He was a gentle Lord Jesus, wasn't he? He didn't come to rabble-rouse. He didn't cause to come to start riots in the street. He didn't come with this megaphone trooping up and down the streets yelling at the political system. 
He was a gentle, quiet servant of the gospel, explaining the scriptures in the synagogue, calling for people to repent, particularly paying attention to broken and weak people and healing and meeting their needs. And that's what's reflected in verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Uh, Most commentaries that I studied uh, believe that to be a reference to, to people who are needy. A reed was something that grew there along the riverbanks or, or low moisture areas. And you know how a, a reed might be useful for different things. A, a shepherd boy might cut a reed and carve it a little bit and make it into a flute. But can you picture how a reed, kind of this hollow plant, um, and it's kind of, or maybe a boy uses it for a blow, a blow gun or an arrow for his bow. But when you break a reed, it doesn't break in half because it has fibers in it, but you don't use it anymore. You throw it aside, right? You're not going to make a flute out of that reed or an arrow out of that reed. You just throw it aside. It's no good. Forget it. And the same thing with a wick. Now remember that both of these things are word pictures that culturally speaking, Matthew's audience would have completely understood that we have to struggle with a little bit to recognize what's this reed thing and what's a wick that's burnt down. Well, they would have had their lamp lights and their wicks and after the wick burned and it didn't do right and and some of you know what I'm talking about with like a lantern or a kerosene lamp, sometimes you have to do what? You have to trim the wick, you have to clean it up so that it'll burn again. It gets all smoldery and smudged and it's ready to put out or throw away. And basically the word picture here is simply a bruised reed. He's not going to break them. He's going to heal them. And he's not going to quench the smoldering wick. What will he do? He will renew it. He's come to bring life and renewal of life and hope and strength to people. And he brings justice to victory and in his names and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So this is a great statement about our Lord's servant ministry. He's demonstrated his unlimited capacity. He's trying to regulate publicity. Isaiah Matthew quotes Isaiah to confirm his identity. Notice the people's response then in verse 23, after he, in verse 22, he heals this demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. What a remarkable, beautiful miracle. Stunning to make a blind man see. And all of the people were amazed. So it must have been an exceptionally broken man who was well known for his blindness and his muteness and his lack of communication. And people were aware of him. And then all of a sudden he was a new creation. He was brand new so that the people were just like awed by this. Wow, did you see that one? And then they respond. And this is number four. With the idea that this is a real possibility. It's a real possibility that this could be the Messiah. So the audience is catching on. And they are learning and realizing, could this be the son of David? They've been longing for Messiah and now they're recognizing it in their own thinking. Yes, I think that the unspoken answer is, yes, yes, I think we've got something here. It's like, yeah, get a clue. It's incredible. But when the Pharisees, and now we're getting to the heart of our text... But when the Pharisees heard it, verse 24, they said, It is only Beelzebul. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Do you remember that in chapter 10, they said that he was Beelzebul? They called him Beelzebul. Do you remember Beelzebul was a slang name for the devil? It was taken from a horrible Canaanite god that had something to do with like flies. 
The idea would be there of maggots, like Lord of the Flies or Lord of Maggots is how I picture it. This horrible Canaanite god, Beelzebul. And it was a slang term or a nickname for the devil. So if you called somebody, you're Beelzebul, it was the same thing as saying, you're the devil. And to look at our Lord Jesus in all of his beauty that Isaiah and Matthew have just taken the time to describe this servant, favored by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and to say the only way you do this is by the devil. Wow. It's a wonder that the ground didn't open up and swallow them right then, you know? It's a wonder that the mountains didn't just cave in on top of them. It's incredible. What you have here is you have a determined, number five, a determined hostility by the Pharisees in verse 24. A determined hostility. They were determined to hate Jesus. Have you ever been around someone like that? Somebody who no matter what you say, no matter how you pray, no matter what you do, they hate Jesus. By the way, our world is filled with people like that today. They are determined to hate Christians and they hate Jesus. And our Lord warned about that in John 15, didn't he? That do not be surprised if the world hates you because they hated me first. There's a lot to hate in Jesus, isn't there? It's unbelievable. This determined hostility... um, is responded to by Jesus now in verses 25 through 30 with number 6. He points out their logical absurdity. The Lord Jesus is going to masterfully point out to them the inconsistency of their logic and that they can't say what they just said and be logically accurate. He's also going to do with them something that the Lord had a great way of doing with the Pharisees and he would take their own words, ask questions about it, and pin them in a corner so that either way they answered, they were going to be wrong. He would set it up for where they had to give an answer, and if they answered this way, they were going to be wrong. They didn't want to go there because that would be acknowledging he's of the light, he's of God, he's, he's right. Or they would go this way and have to say, well, we're of the devil. And that can't be. And they didn't want to answer either one, and so often they would just be silent. So let's look at his response where he points out the absurdity of their logic. Knowing their thoughts... He said to them, verse 25, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Our Lord is also pointing out the reality that there's really only two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom and there's Satan's kingdom. And if Satan indwelt this man who was deaf and mute, it was evidently obviously known that it was a satanically induced illness on this guy and that he was demon possessed. And so if Satan indwelt this guy and Satan ruined his life, why then would Satan send somebody along named Beelzebul who would cast out Satan? If Satan put him into man, why would Satan cast him out of the man? That is a house divided against, against himself. And that is the foundation of their logical absurdity. You guys are nuts. You can't do this. You can't have both. Satan doesn't tear down and build up. It doesn't work that way. And so He then goes on to point out that they themselves claim to cast out demons. Verse 27. They cast out demons by Beelzebul. By whom do your sons cast them out? If I cast them out. Okay, so here's his point. The Pharisees, and remember uh, earlier uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, didn't Jesus remember where he says, depart from me, I never knew you. 
And one of the things that the Pharisees say to Jesus at that point is, what do you mean? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? So evidently, they, A, either had some success where in the name of God or in Christ, even if they weren't using it properly, there was a power in his name, and they did have some results in casting out demons, or at the least, B, they believed themselves to have the power to cast out demons. And so, and it says, okay, so then Jesus says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast out demons? So they, it doesn't matter whether they really did cast out demons in this passage. The point is they claim to cast out demons. And if they claim to cast out demons, in whose name did they cast out those demons? If you say that I do it, Jesus says, by Beelzebul, the devil, and then your sons, and that might mean physical sons, but it probably means their disciples or their young trainees were longing to be spiritually powerful, and so they cast out demons. Demonic oppression and demonic possession and demonic brokenness was common in the Middle East at this time. And so, Jesus is just pointing out the absurdity of their logic. And now he had them trapped. Are you going to say that, if, if you say that I cast them out by Beelzebul, then who do you say your sons cast them out by? And they don't want to say, oh yeah, we do it in the name of Beelzebul too. But if they, don't, if they don't do it the same, then the only other option is to say he's God and he has real spiritual power. And they weren't about to say that Jesus had a real spiritual power from God. So they just have to kind of be quiet. And there's like Jesus has him cornered a little bit. And he had him. But if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, verse 28, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in other words, if it's not by Beelzebul and it is by the kingdom of God, how come you don't accept me? They're not going to ask that. They're not going to answer that question. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? In other words, of course, if I am God, I will have the power over Satan so they can bind the strong man so that I can set people free. And I can come invade the prince of the power of the air's territory, the world, and release people under his bondage. But I'm going to bind the strong man first. So it's only logical that Jesus would have that kind of power. And then he says, and this is the part everyone's been waiting for. Therefore, I tell you, well, verse 30, okay, is number seven in our little unfolding outline of the passage. Verse seven, there is no such thing as neutrality. Verse, excuse me, verse 30, point number seven of our little outline, there is no such thing as neutrality. Look what he says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're, you're unshepherdable, shepherdable. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. Jesus doesn't allow you to be neutral. So then verse 31, which we're waiting for. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. If we stop right there, we recognize that there is an unlimited grace with impunity. Available from God. This is number eight. Unlimited grace with impunity. Unlimited grace with impunity. Do you know what impunity is? It means to be pardoned without punishment. And that's what God does to sinners, right? And he says right there, if you stop right there in the middle of the sentence, we are reminded of a teaching that permeates Scripture. Okay, because so let's talk about the unpardonable sin for just a second before we get to it. 
The text doesn't really give much information about this unpardonable sin. It just says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then that raises questions in our mind. Well, what does that entail? Do you have to say a certain thing? Do you do a certain thing? What is that? Who can do it? Did it only happen in this day? Didn't it? The text doesn't explain itself. It just says it. So there's two things we have to look at to help us understand the passage. Number one, we want to understand the foundational teachings of Scripture and how does this measure up to it. And number two, we want to look at the context of the passage. Who's Jesus talking to and what's going on in the passage and see if that sheds light on it. So the first part of the sentence as he's going into this teaching, therefore I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. That's a wonderful statement. That's a statement about God's unlimited grace with impunity. No punishment for sinners who deserve it. Listen, the testimony and teaching of Scripture is that all sin, no matter how horrible, is forgivable. That's what the Bible teaches. The atonement is not limited. I'm not talking about five points of Calvin and tulip. I'm talking about the atonement is not limited in that there is some kind of sin that comes down the pike that somebody does and the blood of Jesus Christ and his atonement is inadequate to take care of that sin. It is not limited like that. Can't be. How do we know? We study the scripture. 1 John 1.7. Don't turn there. Let me read it. 1 John 1.7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from, do you know the next word? All sin. How much sin? All sin. Don't you love that? Don't you think there's people in this room? Yes, there is. Who have sin that's gone on in their lives and in your life and maybe even right now. And it's so horrible, you don't want anybody to know it. And you don't even want to think about it. And it overwhelms you when you do think about it. And so when you go to the cross, and the Lord Jesus spread out His arms, and He shed His blood for us, it was for how many sins? All sins. That's what the Bible teaches. Jeremiah 33.8. Jeremiah 33.8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. He said about Israel. All the guilt of their sin against me. 1 Timothy 1.15 1 Timothy 1.15 This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul goes on to say, of whom I am. The ESV uses the word foremost. It means I am the worst. I'm first in line of the worst of sinners. And Paul said that's who Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Romans 8.1 we used this verse not long ago in communion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you say, Pastor Van, it's possible somebody in here has a secret and you would say in your heart of hearts and you're not going to tell anybody. And you would just say, Pastor Van, you don't understand. I have murdered. I have murdered people and nobody knows about it. I'm a murderer. And I would say, so was Moses and so was David. And the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from that sin. You say, but you don't understand. You, you, no one knows the adultery that I've been a part of. Nobody knows how I have fornicated and sinned sexually. And the Bible specifically says that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
So I don't know, maybe that's my unpardonable sin in my life. And I say to you, you show me somebody who sinned more blatantly in the realm of adultery than King David himself, whom God forgave, who Psalm 51 talks about his bones waxing old within him when the burden and any of the relief of the forgiveness of sin, that man after God's own heart. How about the adulterous woman in Luke 7 that was guilty, Luke said, of many sins, known as a woman of the night from the red light district, a horrible, adulterous woman. And what did our Lord Jesus do? Say, cast the stones. No. It's a woman. Just go and sin no more. And he had compassion for her. How about Luke 15? My favorite guy in the Bible to not like. The prodigal son. I would like to just give him an elbow up beside the ear when he looks at his dad and he says, why don't you just die so I can have the inheritance? And I said, get off my property. And he goes and in riotous living spends everything that his father had worked all his life for and he disrespects his father to the ultimate degree. And the father in the story is none other than our heavenly father. And what does he do, do when he sees the, the rascal, the sinning punk come down the lane? But he was broken, wasn't he? And he said, I'll just go bow down before my father and maybe I can be his servant. And the father runs and hugs him, right? And how about Simon Peter? Who would want to be Simon Peter? Who would want to have as a testimony in their lifetime that three times... Three times with oaths and vulgarity, I, I said I did not know him. And he rejected any relationship with Jesus. And one time at least he did it, looking Jesus straight in the eyes. And he renounced his relationship with him. And back to the Apostle Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1.13. The part of the passage I just read. There where Apostle Paul says, I was the worst, I was the first in line of all the bad sinners. There he said, I was a blasphemer. So we know, we know when we read the first part of that sentence, at least, back in Matthew 12, that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven by people who are repentant, who come to the cross and the blood of Christ covers all that sin. No worries. We hate our sin. We don't sin so that grace can abound. He even goes on in verse 32 at the beginning, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So there you say, okay, okay. So you can blaspheme Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, and you can be forgiven. Because look, Pastor Van, there's a but in the sentence. Let's read verse 31 now and finish it. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is number nine, rejecting Christ with full finality. Rejecting Christ with complete finality. Let's ask ourselves the question first, what is blasphemy? We're almost done. Blasphemy is a conscious denouncing and rejection of God. 
It is a defiant, irreverent, intentionally and open speaking of evil against the holy God. It is defaming him. It is mocking him. Leviticus 24.16 says that it, it demands the death penalty by stoning Let me put some people at ease right now with this statement. I think it's a true statement. If you are worried about the fact that you've committed the unpardonable sin, that in and of itself is probably proof that you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Because if you had committed the unpardonable sin, you, would be, you wouldn't even be worried about it. Because that's the kind of defaming, that's the kind of horrific, antagonistic I hate God, I hate Jesus, I hate the Holy Spirit talk. And if you have talked like that, and you are so hard-hearted, you wouldn't care. In fact, when we started singing holy, holy, holy at the beginning of the service, you'd have probably spit on the floor, got up, and walked out. That's the kind of person we're talking about here. First of all, let's make sure we understand that in the context of this passage, he is dealing with Pharisees first and foremost on this sin. First and foremost, it's about the Pharisees that day. And the reality of the fact that through the power of the Holy Spirit, they had, they had determinedly rejected Jesus, the Messiah, against every evidence and argument that the Holy Spirit had made clear to them. That the Holy Spirit had completely made clear to them, this is the Messiah. And they looked at him and called him Beelzebul. And so seeing truth incarnate and rejecting him and condemning him, they were without hope. There was no forgiveness for that. If you are going to look at Jesus right there in his earthly ministry, first and foremost, and the Holy Spirit has done everything to reveal to you that this is him, and you say, I don't care what you do, I don't care what you say, I am determined to hate you. You are Beelzebul. I'll call you the devil. I don't want to hear the truth. There is no forgiveness for that person. How does that apply to us? I mean, Jesus uses the phrase there, you will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. I think that that's an idea of the, of, of, they have in their hearts a permanent refusal to believe. They permanently want to seal in their hearts, I will not believe. Well, then there's no hope for you in this age. While you're still alive, if you refuse to believe, there's no salvation. You will not be forgiven because you have to repent of your sin and you have to come in humility to the cross to be saved. And there's also no forgiveness in the life to come in the next age. It is permanent. It is irreversible. God can do nothing more for these Pharisees than what he has done through the ministry of the Holy Spirit revealing truth to them. And for most of us, God can hardly do anything more than he's already done, giving us his son, the Lord Jesus, the scripture. And if you have a determined unbelief, you better start scaring yourself. Now, let me be quick to say that I personally believe that as long as there's life and breath in your body, there is, a, there is hope that you would come to the cross and repent of your sin. But the second that you stop breathing your last breath and you have a determined disbelief and you can't stand God and you can't stand Jesus and you despise the Holy Spirit, there will be no forgiveness for you that God cannot pardon that. And he will not pardon it in the age to come. There is a, a worldwide religion that has its headquarters in Rome. I'll not name names. And they have a key doctrine called purgatory. 
And they build it partly on this. They believe that Jesus is implying that you can go into the next age, that would be eternity future, and work off your sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. What he's teaching here is the irreversibility of your condition. If you reject God's gospel and you reject Jesus, you reject God, and you reject the Holy Spirit as he reveals Jesus to you, you breathe your last, you enter eternity, you are unforgiven, you will never be forgiven. That, for us, is the unpardonable sin. And there is no hope for that person. And the Pharisees, standing there, God could do, God couldn't do more through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to reveal Himself to them as plain as day. And they looked at Him and sneered and hissed and called Him the devil. Bam. God has no answer for that. You're condemned. So, for the person here this morning, and you have heinous, heinous sin in your life in the past, just go to the cross. It's forgivable. I assure you, based upon the authority of the Word of God, that all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. As long as you're alive and you're at the foot of the cross and you're repentant. For the person who possibly has endured this service and in your heart and mind right now, you can't stand me because I'm a preacher in the pulpit and you despise the Bibles that you see and you can't stand Christianity and you're only here just because you've got a little bit of politeness left. Listen, unless you bow and repent before Christ, there is no hope for you. You are, you are condemned in your sin. And I have no other answer than to, to repent and bow before it's everlastingly too late and you are unforgivable. So, will you dump the false guilt at the foot of the cross? And if there's a hard-hearted Pharisee here today, would you fall on your face and beg before a holy God for repentance, in repentance for your sin to be forgiven and let newness of life come in? Let's pray, shall we? Why don't you just stand with me? Father, you know our thoughts, you know our hearts, our minds. Lord, for those who might be struggling with guilt over sin in their past, maybe even sin in their present, would you get a hold of their hearts and break them down, bring them to the cross, and may the glory of the cross and your amazing grace just renew and refresh them with the reality of how much you love them and how Jesus Christ died for our sin and that the atonement covers all sin. Father, for those who have a determined disbelief today, would you open their eyes and like, the, like Saul on the road to Damascus, would you drop the scales off their eyes before they're unpardonable in all of eternity? Please challenge us as we go to think about our lives and our living in your presence. Thank you for the marvelous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for testimonies like John Newton's. And thank you that we can know that we were horrible sinners, but we have a a great Savior today. And we can revel in the forgiveness of sin. Encourage hearts and build up your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.